Let's pray. Uh, indeed, Lord God, we thank you, Lord, that we can come around your word and feed from the truth that sanctifies. And Lord, as we come around your word and, and draw from it this living word this morning, we just pray that it would continue to work in our hearts and renew our minds and would help us to uh, sustain us, Lord, in our, in our daily walk in this challenging culture. And uh, Lord, you do, through your sovereign hand, hold all things in your grip, including our health, our lives, and even our growth and sanctification to holiness. We just thank you again this morning as we've come around this breaking of bread to commemorate, Lord, the gift of your Son, that act of love that has clothed us in his righteousness. We thank you for drawing us to yourself. And as we uh, come to your word, just help us to put aside the busyness of our minds, that we may be preoccupied with the worries of this world, that we might just put those aside for a time to grow in our love for you and for one another. And we just pray this in your son's name. Amen. All right, well, if you've been with us the last couple of weeks anyway, uh, you'll know that we have departed from our usual format of expository preaching. Not that we are not expositing or drawing from God's Word, but we're not unpacking it in the normal systematic and systemic way that we would draw the meaning from a particular passage and go through a book. So this is a bit different. And if you're following online, which we do have quite a few followers, you'll also find that this is going to be a bit of a change for the next month or so. But it's a short series. We felt it was pretty important to highlight some of these things that will later become an addendment to our fundamentals of the faith. And those who are wanting to become membership, we go through that 13-week course, and then we wanted to sort of add these distinctives that what we believe is a church in an ever-shifting culture, in a rapidly shifting culture, we felt it was important to address some of these topics. Um, some of those topics are pretty fixed in terms of the debate of the day, like believer's baptism or the plurality of elders or eschatology. You know, those are pretty timeless positions. There hasn't been a lot of recent controversy in those, in those debates but we do want to clarify them, of course, as we, as we go through them. But, for example, a debate on baptism hasn't really added any new arguments in the past thousand years even, uh, nor has church polity or even the plurality of elders. Not to say that the matter is completely settled amongst all believers, um, but it's, it's not. But the, the pedo-baptists, for example, aren't coming up with new innovative arguments why sprinkling an infant who doesn't believe is biblical versus those who immerse the believers. Those are basically the same arguments, but this morning's different. <laughs> this morning we're going to be looking, if you've looked at your bulletin, although I didn't have that exact uh, title in my topic, um, it's just simply gender. What is gender? So I've been given a bit more latitude than what's in your bulletin. And let me just look at the clock so I know where I'm at, how much time I have. Now, this is a distinctive that will likely need, to, need some updating, regular updating. Not because God's Word needs updating, uh, nor that the Bible is unclear on this particular topic, uh, but it's because there's almost a daily addition to new and inventive terminology, uh, invented genders and... Uh, the argument is becoming so cluttered with doublespeak and 
ideological activism and censorship that the boundaries that they, they're moving will have to be addressed uh, as we move ahead. <laughs> but scripture is very clear in terms of defining gender and what gender is, what it means, who created it, why, what are their functions, how we distinguish one from the other. That's a very quick sermon. That would be, that would be 20 minutes. But, but part of this message is to help us address uh, the almost absurd levels of logical contradictions that's become modern gender theory or gender normative movement, um, which are terms that you'll pick up as if you dare go on the internet and type that word gender. It just comes clubbing you through the screen. But let's just delve a little bit into where we find ourselves here. Let's look at how slippery the slope has become, if I can use that term. About 30 years ago, this is when I was first asked to be part of a leadership role in a, in a Baptist church. I was very young, and in my opinion, too young to be in that position. Um, but nevertheless, you might remember there was a very heated debate around the role of women in leadership. Let me just, sorry. I'm just going to take a drink. I am still getting over my cough, so do forgive me if I have a bit of a fit. But <clears throat> there were many debates in many denominations that are entrenched in this complementarian, egalitarian view of women in the church. Specifically, should women have authority over men in terms of preaching to them, uh, leading them? Now this debate, theological debate, is beyond the scope of this, what I'll use that term, Lerman again. Uh, we are, because we're going to be asking propositional questions and answering those questions through this topical series, it's not a sermon as, as much as it is also a lecture. So it's a bit of both, a, a lerman, sermon and a lecture. Yeah, Dr. Uh, Warwick has coined that phrase that we keep borrowing. But anyway, um, I, I will be addressing obviously God and his creation of man and women and the implications of that, but I, I won't get into the egalitarian so much. But the debate at that time, especially among the more liberal or more progressive denominations, argue that women are just as capable, just as wise, they have gifting, therefore they shouldn't be denied that role as pastor simply because they are not men. Now, the egalitarian views, let me just, full disclosure, I, I don't support that view, but they are riddled with a lot of cultural baggage and assumptions of that time. They lacked a, a, a clear contextual argument, and they're bloated with a lot of historic socioeconomic presumptions of that time and uh, forced and force-fitted into our modern time. But it was a very impassioned argument, very loud and loaded with social justice speak and feminist talking points. So it was, you, you were always on the back foot because that is the argument they were coming from. Um, the, the logical or the uh, modern sensibilities of the day was silencing those who didn't agree with it. Now, my point in bringing this up is, is just this example here. Uh, the Church of England was one of the most vocal advocates of this egalitarian position. And way back when, proudly ordained the first woman, I think it was 94 in that period, followed by about 30 others in the months to come. So they were very proud. We're, we're progressive. We're going to do this. We've made our contextual 
cultural argument, therefore things have changed, therefore we're going to change. But here we are 30 years later, roughly, and this is astonishing. That very same church, that church that said anyone else who's not doing it is a bigoted church, a backward church for not ordaining women, that same church this past month, now when we go back and look at the sermon, this month is August <laughs> 2022, that same church this very month stated this, we cannot define what a woman is. In a blink of an eye, a woman has gone from being oppressed, marginalized, unequal, to being erased. That's like going from hero to zero in about 200 communions. I mean, that's a very phenomenal shift. And it hasn't been a 30-year shift. It's been, you know, year 27, 28, 29, everything's fine. Everything's, now all of a sudden, we can't even define a woman. So it hasn't been a slow socio change in, in the language or a slow movement in the evolution of um, how we use words. It was, it was demanded of them to make that and to hold that position by a certain ideological position, which we will address. <laughs> so the liberal churches like the Church of England are suddenly arguing that gender categories can't really be known. It's too nuanced and too personal. It's uh, binary words need to be uh, eliminated from our edgy um, biblical terminology and why are they saying that? Well, they're saying gender is informed by cultural views and, of course, one's personal truth. Uh, in other words, it's your truth, so it's your reality. Now, if you're a casual observer of these cultural trends, this may sound surprising, may even sound like satirical sermon. Um, if you've not been following the decline of the postmodern church and the cultural relativism that's taken over in their language, this does seem impossible, contradictory, illogical. But it's important to know that the attack on gender isn't a side issue. It's not a sideshow argument over here. It's quite central. It's central because it's the very notion of truth. This, this gender normative movement doesn't just undermine God's described or prescribed roles on gender. But it's an attack on the very meaning of the words that we use to communicate God's truth and the very existence of truth. But it starts with this, with this biblical binary of men, of women, of marriage. What does that mean? That's been redefined. And family, that is being redefined in real time. Let me give a couple examples just to show you how, how uh, quickly this has changed. In uh, 2015... This, there's a big retailer in the state called Target. Uh, they announced a change in their store. It's a clothing store. It's a toy store. It's, a, it's, a, it's like a Walmart, I suppose. And um, in their stores, the children's toy section and bedding sections would soon become gender neutral. The retailer has removed all distinctions between little girls and little boys in clothing and in toys. And this is also being now copied by other major retailers as well to affirm this gender, gender neutrality and even vilifying the binary gender distinctions that are biblical. And governments are towing the, the line as well. Way back in 1999, that's 23 years ago, the EU signed a legally binding protocol to enforce all of their member states to legislate public policies that would remove the references 
to male and female. The intention is to remove those distinctions, those unique sexual <coughs> qualities and structures, and of course, to disassemble even the fabric of the nuclear family. Now, if you want to know what's coming to South Africa, or to, I suppose, any Western democracy outside of the EU, just look at the Scandinavian countries. They are like the petri dishes of social engineering and gender mainstreaming. In, in Sweden, children are no longer referred to as boys and girls. They are just rather, in schools anyway, they use a gender-neutral term called friends. So they're just friends. In 2012, Sweden introduced gender-neutral pr pronouns, hen, uh, to the children's vocabulary. So all little boys and girls are just hens. They're little, they may be people. In Switzerland, children of school, in school age are no longer to be called, oh, sorry, parents of school children, I should say, are no longer to be called mom and dad, but rather parent one and parent two. So there's no safe, no sacred space. This gender normative movement won't take over. Even distinctive and separate bathroom spaces are considered bigoted and backward, irrelevant. So this movement is so powerful, they've even convinced legislators and retailers and institutions that it's transphobic to separate women from men in bathrooms. But listen to this. They are saying you cannot separate men and women, but at the same time saying they cannot be defined. That's where we are. <laughs> Somehow, this logical contradiction is hovering there without any framework below it. So it's going to crash. It has to crash. And God's Word is, is the thing that crashes it. Now, this is a sample of um, this great shift we're seeing away from the biblical truth of gender. I'm just giving you a glimpse of what's coming our way and to prepare ourselves for definitely prosecution, persecution as we uphold and we declare God's design and mandate for gender, for marriage, and the roles in each. So why does the world want to confuse gender? Because up until the 1950s even, that's how far back we can see that there was the idea of differentiating between sex and gender was completely foreign. Those words gender and sex were interchangeable. Whether it was in medical or psychological communities, academia, those two could be interchanged. In biological textbooks, medical journal journals, doctor's rooms, those two, sex and gender, have been used synonymously. Even though sex can be used, obviously, to describe a function, it also meant a position. And both used, both were used to describe a biological difference between male and female. And there are, let's, let's address this, because it has to be mentioned, um, that there are very rare instances where biological gender is amorphous. And gender distinction is unclear. And in, in rare cases of de, um, deformities. And apart from these very rare cases of genetic malformations, every human has either X chromosomes, and that makes them female, or an X and Y chromosome, which makes them biologically male. It wasn't until the past 20 years or so that this distinction between sex and gender, this, this separation of them was popularized. And... Um, but no matter how they try to popularize it, you can see now that there's a logical incoherence between the, even their own arguments that we can't define women, but we have to separate them, or we have to join them with men. Or if I want to transition from being a man to a woman, this is what I look like, but I can't define it. 
you, you see that these are, are seriously incoherent positions to hold. But my point here is that no amount of transition surgery or hormone therapy will ever change who God has made you, even if there is that rare instance where you may, it may be unclear physically. Um, you're simply, and a, and a pastor actually asked me this once, and he was being very sincere and maybe hadn't thought about it very much, but he said, no, this friend of a friend is transitioning. I said, what do you mean transitioning? I knew what he meant, but I wanted him to, I was forcing him to articulate what he meant. And he says, well, they're undergoing surgery from being a male to a female. I said, but it's just, it's still a female. You can't, or sorry, male, it's still a male being mutilated. There's no, there may be a physical change, but that person will always be a female, but just I'm now a mutilated one, um, and vice versa. And we can also see that there's a never-ending list of gender pronouns that are being added out of thin air, thin air as well. Um, you look at the social media sites, I think Facebook now has 70 <laughs> genders. Um, but if you want to buy a Facebook t-shirt, there's male or female sizes. Um, but there's gender fluid, cisgender, gender questioning, pangender, spirit gender, it goes on. It, it's, it's incredible. But the Bible nowhere teaches or even affirms that men or women can believe themselves to be something they are not. God has given them at birth that gen gender distinctive. And the Bible is also perfectly consistent in equating gender and biological sex. There's no biological distinction in Scripture between those terms. So to muddle that or to conflate them and separate them is not a biblical position at all. The Bible simply speaks of male and female and no spectrum. There's no continuum in God's Word saying you, you can become this or because you may have a feminine appearance, therefore you are feminine or, or a woman. None of that is mentioned in Scripture. It is true that you can have effeminate men and you can have masculine women. You can have uh, girls who like to do boy, typical boy things, but that doesn't make them boys and vice versa. But... Where does this confusion come from? Well, we, it was mentioned this morning quite nicely about the fall. And uh, sin, answer, sin entered this domain that we live in. We, we habitat this earth. And scripture mentions that this sin has affected all of creation, including our biology. The Bible does teach that sin has this devastating effect. Uh, Psalm 51 verse 5 describes this birth, that behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. And also in Romans 8, verse 22, speaks of the fallen nature of all creation and the effect on man until, until later we will be resurrected in that perfect glory, glorified state in glorified bodies. In Romans 8, 22, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So this is where we are. This is where we live. This is, we are not there yet. And this fallen nature has even corrupted the thinking of the fallen world. The unredeemed minds and hearts of people who invent all sorts of gender identities and philosophies of men. 
So it's because of sin and the groaning, the crumbling effects of the fall, that we have these anomalies, physical anomalies that can occur at birth, but also even corrupting our understanding. So the goal of the gender normative movement is to confuse, it's to conflate, and more importantly, it's to erase most of what we know to be biblically true. And we are living in a time of extreme postmodern decline. I think we can all agree, even if we're watching the way um, news is being interpreted, it's, it's quite shocking how things can be tortured from what is pretty obviously true to a completely different story. Now, postmodernism, just, I'm not going to preach on, on what this is, but just so we understand our terminology, it's a philosophical belief that truth cannot be known because truth statements are, they argue, a postmodernist would argue, they're culturally constructed. They're rooted in nothing more than your own imagination. Um, and postmodernism doesn't seek to add to the pool of knowledge, but simply to subtract or obscure uh, what is knowable. That's a postmodernist philosophy that came out of modernism, which was a bit of the opposite. That all can be known through just um, scientific inquiry and observation. So, postmodernists deconstruct established truths and replace them with doubt. Now, that sounds familiar. That was also brought up this morning. This refrain is a very familiar one, right? In Genesis 3, has God really said? That is the refrain of the postmodernist. Not to add, not to say, I think this is what he said, but just to question, has it been said? And to cause doubt. And when you question everything that God has said, you're left with what? A void, eventually. Um, when you remove all of those boundaries that God has placed, pretty soon you slide into complete relativism. And this slide, I think, is accelerating. You know, the, the questions we used to ask in, in theological debates or even in the church history were debates about cultural, acceptable, maybe sexual practices. Is this a sin or not? We, can, we should discuss that. Then it moved to, well, what is marriage? Can that even be defined? Should we define? Is it loving to, to limit marriage to a specific relationship? Is that, is that correct? And now, all of a sudden, we're talking about what is a man? Can that even be known? Can a woman be defined? Well, then, where else are we going? They're also talking and asking about what is a person? What is life? What, is it, what does it mean to be human? What's the difference between a human and an animal? And this doesn't end well. Nothing's out of the bounds of the postmodernist ideologue because there are no, there's no such thing as truth, remember that, in their mind. For example, if I can self-identify as either gender, why can't I self-identify as any race? I can end racism right here by just saying, we're all, we're all black, we're all white. We're all, we can, if I offend you for being a different color, I'm your color. Why not? Any species. And this is the one that really worries me. Why not age? If you can deny thousands of biological markers that distinguish you from a man or a woman, or female or male, then you can certainly self-identify as something insignificant as a linear age. Because that's one marker. One, two, three. There's just one category, one axis of measure. So now they are asking, what is a child? 
And to give this a push, this, this, this movement of a veneer of credibility, they're, they're under this guise of science, the American Psychological Association published papers making the claim that adults who are attracted to children are not predators, they're not pedophiles, they are expressing an orientation. They're just misunderstood. They are trans-chronological. We laugh at the absurdity, but we cannot laugh at where this is going. So they are on the campaign to remove the word pedophile and replace it with, ready for this? Minor attracted persons. So, that's not my sermon. That's just warming you up <laughs> to where we now. I, I warned Peter this is going to be a long intro. There's nothing new under the sun, folks, though. Since the fall of man, we will always be confronted with all manner of false claims and false teaching. We are always going to be swimming upstream to where the culture says, this has God really said. And they're devoted to destruction while we are trying to honor the Lord. They are always and relentlessly challenging, has God said what we say, thus saith the Lord. So the question that casts doubt on God's created order, God's authority, His sovereignty, is the very same and fundamental question behind every challenge that we read about in first in Genesis 3, has God said. And when someone challenges the truth, they are really challenging what? God's authority. They're not challenging you, your beliefs. Well, they are in a sense, but you're by proxy because you should be upholding what God says. You're, you are in a sense, living for His glory. So you're honoring Him in the way you speak, the way you think, and the way you live. So let's start with some questions, because this is, again, the format. Ask the question and answer it from biblical text. Again, this is a Lerman, and so buckle up for a few questions. Uh, that doesn't mean you can put your hand up, because it's not. it is, it is a, a didactic approach. Uh, is gender self-identity... A sin. I think we've kind of answered that already. Uh, at least I hope that by your cringing you arrived at an answer. But we know that people who are genuinely struggling with this identity thing, uh, ideology, let's call it, because it's certainly not grounded in much science, they're, they're being indoctrinated into this confusion. And from all fronts, school, government, retailers, newscasters, it's all fronts. It's celebrated even. But God's Word defines who we are and who we are to be. Our personal feelings can never and should not thwart God's declaration, His plans, His sovereignty. So when we are discussing self-identity, we are dealing with what? A heart. Because they say how I feel, right? It's a heart issue. And what do we know about our heart? It's deceitful. When you believe that your feelings and your experience is the thing that creates truth and redefines your, not just your reality, because remember you're demanding the reality of others, also shifts everyone's reality. Um, not quite sure how that works either, but that's what I've been told. Uh, also been told that silence is violence, but so is speaking. I, I can't get... <laughs> um, but when you are... When you're trying to structure your own personal self-identity and personal reality, you are self-deceived, not self-identified. 
And Jeremiah 17.9 reminds us very clearly, right, that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? So you can't even understand your own heart. Never mind the heart and will of others. So the description of the human heart and the even human will, our volitional will, means that we cannot trust our own feelings on that issue. We can't trust that what our feelings are trying to lead us to is true. So as believers, we should recognize that when we place our trust in our own hearts and minds, we're thwarting God's, we are trying to eliminate God's role in our lives. We are placing ourselves in authority above Him. And believers can only trust who we are and who God is from His Word. And this is true for gender and true for all of our words and our thoughts and our deeds. So when someone believes that they should think and live in a way that contradicts what God has said, God's clear instruction, either through command or through principle, that's a sin. So we know already that whether it's gender identity or you're justifying your own actions or trying to hide a sin, that is sin. You're self-deceiving yourself. This is just a very recent expression of that. And so, what is our response? As believers, we need to feel compassion and we need to feel concern for those with that kind of confusion and in that sinful struggle. But we need to see that it is a sin. That self-identification, as any other, it's like any other sin, and we need to deal with it in that same restorative and same prayerful way that we would with others, whether it's with ourselves or with one another. You go to one another. You go to that such a one who is in sin. Now, the answer isn't what the world says, and that is to affirm if you really love somebody, you'll affirm their self-identity, their self-belief, their personal truth. Um, but is that true? Let's just take this another step. There are people who believe that, what, I'm trying to remember the scientific name, but they self-identify as disabled, fully abled, but they self-identify as an amputee. Both legs, both arms, perfectly fine, perfectly healthy. But in their minds, they, and there are, this isn't like, there are thousands of them. This is well documented, actually. So they'll be in wheelchairs, they'll, they won't be able to walk, but it's all in their mind. Now, if we <laughs> lovingly affirm them, according to the world, we should see that through. We should encourage the amputation and pat them on the head and say, all is well. If you really believe, if you maybe have a schizophrenia kind of condition that, um, that the, the TV is talking to you and it's instructing you to do things, we should lovingly affirm that madness and pat them on the head and say, you're fine, you're right, the, the TV really is telling you to jump off a cliff. No, that is not affirming. It needs to be born and grounded in truth. Truth is above love. Um, without truth, it's just brutality. Um, other way around. Um, <laughs> love in the absence of truth is flattery. Um, but love without truth, not, is, is truth without love is brutality. I knew I'd get it out eventually. But it's not in my notes. Uh, we <laughs> so we're going to increasingly, though, in the days ahead, confront this. 
And as a church, we cannot yield to what is definitely going to be a case of persecution to come. Um, we are going to run into people who believe they are what they feel. And for them, their truth and their experiences does define their reality. And again, this is what has been whispered in their ear from Genesis 3. Has God really said? The angel of this world does say that. So we need to deal with this sin in the same restorative and corrective way as we would with any other. Our goal is not to ridicule um, those who are genuinely confused with this dysphoria. Um, I would even call it identity politics because this has been weaponized now in the political scene. But we need to bring them back to the truth of God's word and shed light on their situation according to who God says they are before him. Um, So these gender roles and gender responsibilities are by his great design. And by honoring them, you bring him glory and you are edified. So that's the sin issue. Gender distinctions. Is it a cultural construct or a creation mandate? Cultural construct or creation mandate? This brings us back to where? The beginning. Genesis 1. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created them, male and female he created them. And this is where we should be. This is where God declared his creation order. Here God is creating the vastness of the heavens, the complexity of the earth and all living and creepy crawlies on it. And then finally in the end, man in his image. Now his image is important to define as well. That doesn't mean physiologically in his image. God doesn't have arms and legs and beard. But in terms of sharing His communicable attributes, those attributes that God shares with us, we reflect His glory. Um, These attributes are the things that, like self-awareness, rationality, compassion, intellect, emotion, God has all of those things that He's communicably shared with us. And these God-given attributes is what allows mankind to honor and glorify Him, the way we think, the way we feel, the way we make rational choices. Those are attributes that we share in His image. It's important to note, though, that we don't share um, in all of His incommunicable attributes. We must make that distinction. Like We don't have omniscience or omnipresence or eternality. God created us. He's an uncaused cause, the uncreated being. Um, so we don't share in any of those supernatural attributes because we are not God. So when we are made in His image, it doesn't mean we are photocopies of all of His attributes, is my point. But note here in verse 28, that God blessed man and women with a creation mandate when He created them. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, rule it. How do you do that without gender distinctions? Christopher Yon, who... Um, when describing what it means to uh, be created in God's image with these specific and clear and complementary roles, says this, the male and female gender categories is not simply biological or genetic, just as being human is not simply biological or genetic. Sex is first and foremost a spiritual ontology reality created by God. 
Being male or female cannot be changed by human hands. It's a category of God's handiwork, His original and everlasting design. So, in His creating of gender distinctives, He also gave men and women complementary roles in ruling over His dominion. Now, I don't want to spend too much time here because we, we do have another distinctive that we'll be preaching specifically on biblical role of man and biblical role of woman. Um, and so we will unpack this more. But there is overlap that can't be ignored in these two, um, these two uh, topics. So, but let me just make it clear that God created both those categories and with very specific roles for His glory, but for our good. The principle here I want to highlight is when God created man and woman, He did so to do that, to, to share in His communicable attributes in His image, that's what it means, but also there was a function to subdue, to, to procreate, um, and to, to rule over His creation in, in these very clear, glorifying, complementary roles with each having their own strengths and roles and responsibilities. But it needs to be affirmed that it's God who sets the parameters the roles for these categories. And so to add and subtract from these clearly defined mandates is to rebel against what God has set from the beginning. So let's ask another question to dig a bit deeper. Does the Bible teach gender equality? Now the short answer is yes, but I really need to qualify that quickly. (laughs) The long answer is not the way the world teaches it. Yes, but not the way the world defines it. The biblical definition of gender equality is not the world's. When God created Adam and put him in charge of the Garden of Eden, he also noted what? That it was not good for Adam to be alone. So now what? God made a helpmeet for him. And by design, God created humanity to be male and to be female. And while Adam was tasked with naming all the animals and busy in the garden, he observed, Adam observed, that the animals all had a partner, a complementary counterpart, let's say. And we know the rest of the story. God put Adam to sleep, removed one of Adam's ribs, so from Adam came woman. Um, God brought Eve to Adam and the man, and, and the man said, now this is bone of my bone, and flesh of my flesh. And he named, he named her woman, for she was taken out of man. And again, this is the overlapping part, but it must be said, this is why man leaves his father and mother and will be united with his wife, and they will become one. Two distinct, very clear categories of gender, of sex, one. So when God brought her to Adam, Adam acknowledged that she was of the same nature, not a tree or a gazelle, but recognizing her equality as a fellow person, yet distinct. So that equality, that complementary distinctiveness are continually mentioned and affirmed throughout all Scripture. Let's look at 1 Peter 3, verse 7. And we're going to see this. Peter is writing here in the marriage context to affirm this very creation mandate. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. This, this is spiritual equality that I'm talking about. So equality before God as heirs of grace is not the same thing as equality in roles or equality in, in function or 
mandate. Th- those are all very, those are unequal because they're complementary. You can't have a complementary uh, parts of a car uh, and have a functioning car. You can't have just a car made of tires. You've got to have an engine, you've got to have petrol, if you could afford it. And you've got to have other moving parts to make this thing work. Um, <clears throat> so equality before God is not the same as equality of roles, but it's heirs of grace is where we equal. So when God created man and woman, both were made in His image to share in these attributes. And um, God creating them both to share in His communicable, communicable attributes demonstrates the equality of worth. That's the point here that Peter's making. Uh, Raymond Ortland explains this succinctly in a paradox of this account. Was Eve Adam's equal, is the question. And he says yes and no. She was his spiritual equal and suitable for him, quote-unquote. But she was not his equal in that she was his helper. God did not create man and woman to be undifferentiated in any way. Um, and in their mere maleness and femaleness, identity in their respective roles. A man, just by virtue of his manhood, is called to lead for God. And a woman, just by virtue of her womanhood, is called to help, be a help for God. So the equal worth, but different roles of men and women are clearly stated here. And the equality of spiritual need and spiritual restoration, um, spiritual equalness, is what Paul is teaching to the Galatian church as well. He says this in Galatians 3.28, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male and female. You see these categories, these, which were very culturally relevant then as well, as they are now. For you are one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Adam's offspring and heirs according to the promise. So oneness in Christ is equality before Him. Salvation is offered for all people, regardless of race, social status, or um, gender. It's in Christ alone. But equality of value is not to be mistaken for equality of purpose or equality of function. While God views both man and women in equal worth for salvation and for glorification, God has a purpose in those distinctions. So that's, that's very important to make that point. Um, I'm just looking at time because I am running low here. Uh, yeah. The doctrine of the Trinity, I think I just want to mention this is important as well because we need to deal with that unity and their distinction, distinctiveness. The doctrine of the Trinity shows us that God is one but expressed in three separate persons. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The three persons of the Trinity show us that God has unity within diversity. They are distinct but yet perfect roles, harmonious roles as the Godhead. And in creating humanity, both male and female, He gave mankind the capacity for bearing that kind of unity, that, bearing that resemblance of diversity and unity in the two genders. We see this complementary marriage illustration again in Ephesians 5, and Paul explains how they are to love their husbands. Husbands... 5 verse 23 to Ephesians Husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave herself, himself up for her that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. 
He who loves his wife loves himself. So here Paul is highlighting the love that Christ has for the church. And that's the example and and, uh, model for for marriage. And and even how he gave himself up for the the church. We as husbands should give ourselves up for our wives. And if you look at verse 28, Paul says that a husband's wife is like a part of his own body. They're one. He says, he who loves his own wife loves himself. There is that. Um, equal value again. So Paul's making the biblical point here that one flesh union of marriage between a husband and wife illustrates the kind of sacrificial but also servant love that Christ has for His church. And in this sense, when you speak of marriage, biblical marriage, and the unique bond that God has ordained for it, it's impossible then to separate maleness and femaleness. It's impossible because they are created in His image. Um, and so by separating you're also separating the purposes so the unity that God gave husband and wife is not equality but complementary equal worth, equal spiritual purpose but distinct God glorifying purposes Okay, next question is God masculine? it seems so obvious that it's almost silly to spend too much time on this Uh, but it needs to be addressed because that is it's a theological debate As the war on truth rages on, we find ourselves in a time where the very words that we used to use to construct arguments are being challenged. Um, (laughs) This quickly, last week, the White House Secretary, I don't know if you watch news, but uh, she was ridiculed for um, changing the definition of recession. I know it's a small thing, but it's a very important, relevant point. The recession used to have a very clear definition, uh, two consecutive quarters of decline. Something like that. And quickly, because she came up with a word salad, without defining it at all, just saying it can't be defined, Wikipedia quickly went and redefined the term um, of of, uh, recession. And then when Wikipedia was confronted for changing the definition of recession, you know what they did? They changed the definition of definition. (laughs) So... This is really tricky stuff. Uh, it happens in, it's faster than real time. So buckle up. Uh, so it's the redefining of language in real time. It reaches across the globe. And when you control the words, you control the minds. Uh, yes, you've probably heard of that book. So when we read that God, the Word of God is God-breathed, what are we saying? It means that God is the one who breathes truth into the Word. Um, using the, the pen of men, of select men... But it means that God is revealing Himself to man. That's what it means to be God-breathed. And with this in mind, we need to take Him at His word when we are trying to define things and the nature of who we are and our char- His characteristics and our own. And so when God describes Himself in terms, in gendered terms, it's not su- superfluous. It's not a, a light thing. Uh, he always does so with intent. And it's always in the masculine. Always masculine pronouns. It's important to note that God is spirit, so He doesn't have this physical anatomy that we think of like humans, uh, even though we're made in His image. We're image bearers of His characteristics. But God is a person, though, a part of a triune Godhead who has substance and order and essence. And even though the term Trinity is not found in Scripture, it's one that's been popularized because of just extracting who God is in the Godhead. 
Uh, it was first used in the second century by Tertullian, which we learned in our history class a couple years ago. He expressed the Godhead as, as a, a Trinitarian because of the clear teaching of this indivisible nature of God. as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. They're never separate in the Godhead. And he makes three points, um, Tertullian, that there is but one God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit of each is each fully God, and also eternally God, that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit is each a distinct person. And God, the Father, exhibits many characteristics of personhood. Now, bear with me, because this is important. Um, Does God have a gender? God has a will, right? He has a mind. He has emotions. He, He communicates those that He has a relationship with. And God has a will that makes decisions and actions that are according to His perfect sovereign will. And because God is a spiritual being, He doesn't have this physical form, right? But He does use figurative language to describe Himself so that we can relate it. He uses human characteristics of Himself to express His nature to us so that we can understand Him more by using these analogies. Um, the practice of assigning human, human characteristics to God, uh, who's the spirit, is called anthropomorphism. And we get this word anthro, which is human, and morph, which means to form. Uh, so you get human form. Anthropomorphism. Anthropomorphism. So in order for our feeble minds, because we are feeble when we're trying to understand God and trying to comprehend, co- comprehend uh, this invisible spiritual God, He communicates His attributes about Himself that are familiar to us. Right? And it's always in the masculine gender. The pronouns and verbs used to describe Him are always in the masculine. And even the nouns and the, and the imagery used in Scripture, such as Lord or King or Redeemer or Father, Husband, etc., all masculine. Uh, scripture contains 170 references to God as Father. And the masculine for Father can only mean male, scripturally, historically, present day, I promise you. (laughs) The same thing is found in the New Testament. The epistles have about 900 references. And it's used in the Greek, which is theos. And it's used to refer to God in the masculine. It's a masculine noun. And so it's not just in the grammar that we know that he's masculine, which we do know, and that should be sufficient. But the Bible uses metaphors and uses imagery as well. Uh, that God describes himself with, um, like king, as I said, husband, father. In Isaiah 54, 5, let me quickly uh, read that. For your husband is your maker, whose name is the Lord of the armies. And your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel, who is called the God of all the earth. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. So here God is describing his relationship in metaphorical ways to Israel. And he's the husband, he's the bride of Israel. His provider, he's their provider, he's their Lord, and he's their redeemer. Uh, In the New Testament, Christ gives us a model prayer and instructs people to pray in this way. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And and Paul even, uh, he only ever uses a muscular term to describe God in in, um, 1 Timothy 6.15, he describes Christ in this way, He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Here, both sovereign and king 
is in the masculine sense, to describe Christ and his authority over um, his headship over his people. Um, he is sovereign and ruler, just as his father is. So the masculine description carries on, even in the virgin birth of Christ. If you, if you look at um, the angel of the Lord explains to Mary that she'll be having a baby boy. And Christ then condescended himself to come as that boy. Um, fully God, but fully man. As Paul affirms in Colossians 2.9, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. So Jesus' gender is not something that will ever change. Uh, we know that when Christ returns later, uh, that he's promised that he will be the God who will judge the world in righteousness. And uh, he has fixed the day and he will judge the world. Those are masculine gender pronouns. So we don't have to wonder what Christ will appear like when he comes. We know he'll be a man. So from Genesis uh, to Revelation, the Bible's consistent in teaching the maleness of God as the Father, as the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In the limited sense we have about gender, it's important to understand that God is, in a sense, above our human construction of it, right? He transcends our understanding of gender. But He's purposely revealed Himself using masculine language so that we can identify with His characteristics and His role. God is always He in the Bible. And since God uses masculine pronouns to refer to Himself, we should... and honor that and, and believe what he says about himself. Now, there's a masculinity of Christ as well. And that's, we looked a bit at the triune um, Godhead. I'm just skipping ahead here. I've got more to say, but time. Uh, important to realize that Christ only refers to his Father in masculine pronouns when referring to his Father. Um, God chose a masculine form uh, in order to reveal himself to humanity. Uh, John Piper has said this about God and gender, specifically why God is masculine. He says this, The second person of the Trinity is revealed as the eternal Son. The Father and the Son created man and woman in his image and gave them together the name of man, Adam. God appoints all the priests in Israel to be men. The Son of God comes into the world as a man, not a woman. He chooses twelve men to be his apostles. The apostles tell the churches that all the overseers, the pastors, elders who teach and have authority in 1 Timothy 2 should be men. And that in the home, the head who bears special responsibility to lead and protect and provide will be the husband. So the masculine or shall I say the maleness of God and Christ and in this triune Godhead is the model of marriage that is unpacked for us and illustrated to us in the New Testament. And the Bible's teaching on marriage and the role of the godly husband who should lead and protect his bride, that's consistent with the gendered picture of who Christ is for his church. This human marriage relationship is a picture of how the church should operate as well. So, but we'll look more on that as we look at biblical manhood and womanhood. Let me end off with, with this. And by the way, this is going to be systematically put together in a... In a in a booklet that we can address later will accompany the FOF course. So, the gendered roles 
in our modern culture is in a huge upheaval. It's in the midst of redefinition in all fronts, and the confusion is being introduced on purpose, uh, intentionally, as is most, as are most uh, biblical values, to be honest. And as believers, we, when we resist this unbiblical redefining of terms, we will be shunned. We will be ridiculed. We'll be called chauvinistic and narrow-minded. And men, if you recall, when Dr. Warwick warned us a few months ago that we are to be watchmen in these times, not just on gender, uh, but on the very building blocks of language and, and truth. And being a watchman doesn't just mean to watch and to observe. It means to be on guard, be prepared for the times and for what's to come. So the Bible from cover to cover does inform us who God is. It's the only source we have to truly know about Himself in Christ Jesus. His testimony is, is, is vast, but it's also clear, and it should be convicting. So no one can question God's masculinity. And I'll, I'll say that again, because I'll stand by that. No one can question His masculinity without also rejecting the truthfulness and the sufficiency of God's revealed word. He reveals Himself in the Old and New Testaments and in the person of Christ Jesus. So we must speak the truth in love on, on this biblical issue of gender and point those who reject who Christ is and reject God's word to the author of that word. We need to point them to Christ and their need for His saving grace. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father God, Lord, we do come to this topic with, uh, I suppose, uh, confused hearts. Uh, as we see wholesale uh, adoption on these terms that have no internal coherence, uh, cannot be argued, but they can only be shouted and imposed upon us. But Lord, help us to be faithful. Help us, Lord, to uh, be that witness and that salt and light that will draw people to you. And whether it be on gender or whether it be on any other sin, that they would see their need for your Son as their Savior. They would come to him in hope and in trust and in repentance. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.